Hello, it's Thursday, December the 23rd. It's almost Christmas Day, isn't it? And this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming, as ever, for the last time for this year, from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up... The families who've had to have a thrifty Christmas and how they've gone about it. We're looking at the highs and lows of life in Britain in the square mile in the last 12 months. You're looking forward to that Christmas lunch, but oh my word, it's going to take you the equivalent of a 56-mile hike to walk off the calories. Is New Year's Eve, in England at least, going to be safe from COVID? The Mayor of London has already cancelled the Trafalgar Square celebrations. But first, the Welsh First Minister, in a swipe at Boris Johnson, says number 10 is in paralysis over COVID restrictions as he brings in some of the most draconian new rules. But I'm talking to a senior Welsh epidemiologist who says the Welsh First Minister has got it wrong. So the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drakeford, has announced a series of COVID restrictions coming into force on Boxing Day. The new rules will ban gatherings of more than 30 indoors, 50 outdoors, reintroduce social distancing. The rule of six is coming back. Bars will have to serve drinks via table service. The restrictions go even further than those announced in Scotland, despite Wales having a lower infection rate among UK nations. Some Tory MPs are criticising the move, saying Mr Drakeford wants to do something different just to show he can. And of course, Mr Drakeford said of number 10's own response to COVID restrictions, it shows number 10 is in a state of paralysis. Joining me now is the former regional epidemiologist for Wales, Dr Roland Salmon, who's no stranger to this podcast. Dr Salmon, welcome back. He's gone much further, Drakeford, than uh, any of the other parts of the United Kingdom. Has he gone too far? Well, I'm afraid I think he has. I don't doubt that this was well-intentioned enough, but I can't see any coherence in this policy. I can't honestly see what it's designed to achieve. And I also think that given that these sorts of measures haven't worked with less transmissible variants, what on earth leads him to believe that they'll work with this more transmissible variant? So at a number of reasons, I think it's rather incoherent. I mean, I'm not here to defend Boris Johnson, who I equally don't think has played a particularly good hand through this pandemic. But the fact that Boris Johnson's decided to do nothing, I think, does reflect the fact that there is at least some opposition and coherent counter arguments being articulated in Westminster that we're simply not hearing here in Wales. Drakeford said number 10 is in paralysis. I've read the reports about the cabinet discussion, three hour cabinet meeting, eight or nine cabinet ministers saying no more restrictions, Prime Minister. I don't think that suggests paralysis, Dr. Sam. I think it suggests healthy, lively debate. And we need a bit more of that. I certainly think that uh, just about the only elements that are debating whether the science behind these policies are sound, whether they actually work, do seem to be elements of uh, Mr. Johnson's own party. And we don't seem to hear similar things articulated here. Um, I mean, there's a number of uh, things that, that, that really trouble me quite a lot. As I say, I have been a, a critic of, and a skeptic of lockdown since pretty much the middle of last year. And Always we were told, well, this would get us to zero COVID. Well, I thought that was unrealistic, but in a sense, that was at least coherent. You could see that people were trying to achieve that. It's now recognized that that can't happen. So what are we trying to do? Reduce the pressure on the NHS? Well, 
unlike a lot of the commentators that you hear on the airwaves, I am a doctor and I have worked in the NHS and I have worked in busy jobs, albeit, as many people will point out, quite a long time ago. So I understand why you might want to uh, reduce pressure, but there are two things. How much can you reasonably do that at the expense of all the other things in the economy that people want to do, which after all the NHS exists to support? And secondly, if you famous phrase, flatten the curve, and the virus is around for longer, you are arguably increasing the risk of the most vulnerable people because you're increasing the period for which uh, they're they're, uh, in a position where they can become infected. So as I say, at most levels, I don't see the organizing coherence behind the restrictions being proposed. And the impact, Dr. Salmon, on the economy is a factor that the First Minister surely has to take into account. Well, I believe he does. And I believe within Wales, unlike within England, he has a framework within which to do it, which is the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which implies that these sort of policy measures should have impact assessments that look on the wider health and social uh, impact of things like loss of employment, loss of revenue. So far, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened. Public Health Wales have catalogued the sorts of areas where impact might be expected. But to my knowledge, uh, no attempts really been made to actually quantify that. And I think if we're going down this road, then this becomes absolutely essential. By counter, just fine, of course, the First Minister announced these uh, more swinging restrictions on the very day we had reports from not one, not two, but three studies, Imperial College, Edinburgh University and a South African study, all concluding that the Omicron variant is much less dangerous to public health thus far than the Delta variant. Was that encouraging for you? I do find it encouraging. I mean, initially, over two weeks ago now, there was a uh, UK Health Security Agency technical report that spoke about the follow-up of 260 uh, cases of Omicron with no deaths reported. Now, that was early. And normally you'd have expected, sadly, two, three, four deaths in a population of that size. So the very early data was suggesting that it would be less uh, uh, less lethal. Um, there's a study, I think, from Cambridge University that shows that this virus preferentially attaches to cells in the upper respiratory tract rather than ones, that's uh, the nose and throat, rather than those down in the lungs. That's also encouraging. And there's also the um, prevailing view in South Africa about how this particular variant came about, which is that uh, it was the result of Uh, viruses evolving within the sadly large numbers of untreated HIV patients in that country. Now, something that will evolve in uh, in HIV patients and actually uh, can only evolve because it doesn't kill, kill them suggests that this has to be a rather less lethal virus. There's a number of strands of evidence coming together now that, that are very reassuring in this regard. Well, that's very encouraging and a good way to end the conversation. That's Dr. Roland Salmon, who was, of course, the regional epidemiologist for Wales. So visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free in full, along with our podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So Downing Street's making it absolutely clear there will be no changes in the regulations regarding COVID before Christmas Day, but no such guarantees after Christmas. And many MPs fear there would be new restrictions brought in on New Year's Eve. The London Mayor Sadiq Khan has already cancelled the Trafalgar Square gathering, which generally attracts six to 7,000 people. So 
Should we be worried? Uh, let's speak to uh, David Matthews, who's Professor of Virology at the University of Bristol. Professor, we're all looking with great hope and enthusiasm at those three studies, one from Edinburgh University, one from Imperial College, and the third from South Africa, which all seem to suggest that the symptoms from the new Omicron variant are considerably milder than Delta. Yes, no, that's, uh, it certainly is very positive early news. And... Um, uh, one to be welcomed, I think, given the circumstances of uh, this virus having a, a really very surprising ability to spread further and faster than even the Delta variant. We got the news about the three studies on the same day we saw the number of infections go over 100,000 in a day, 106,000. Is it possible, because of the rate this virus is multiplying and, and the transmissibility is so it's so infectious that they may still have to bring in restrictions to try to curb the number of infections, even if they accept now that um, people are going to be less likely to be hospitalised? Yes, I think so. I think it's very touch and go. And I think there are, there are two elements at play here. First of all, because the virus appears to be much more infectious than even Delta, it means that it will be much quicker at finding out, uh, particularly the unvaccinated, and uh, infecting them and potentially putting them in hospital, uh, which is a real shame, really, because I think, I've been saying for some time, I think we have abandoned the unvaccinated and not, not spent enough time trying to persuade them and talk them around. Uh, so it means that their appearance in hospital will be compressed in time. So instead of them appearing in hospital over the next six months, they're now perhaps all going to appear in hospital over the next month or so, and that's, that's one worry. But the other worry, of course, is that uh, hospitals have staff who are catching the virus and then they go lap flow positive And then, of course, they have to self-isolate, uh, you know, now for only seven days, but they still have to self-isolate. And that puts huge pressure on hospital staffing rotors, doesn't it? You know, in all areas where if you're looking at 20, 30 percent or more of your staff being off sick over this period, it just places another layer of stress on hospitals that are already, you know, having difficulties coping with COVID patients. So there's two things happening at once here. So I think it is touch and go as to whether we'll need more restrictions. And part of it is, is just a, a logistics issue of keeping people at work uh, in our, you know, in our hospitals. Do you think we need to see more um, of the sort of hands-on work by councils such as Liverpool, which has put out a, a film uh, warning the local population that the people who are in hospital with COVID are generally younger people in their 30s who are not vaccinated. And it, the film includes some very moving testimonies from nurses and doctors who, who are working on the front line. Perhaps if that was repeated in more towns and cities, people often have more faith in their local council than they do perhaps in a government. That might help increase the number of people get, getting vaccinated. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think this is a really difficult question here because I think people now who are unvaccinated are probably now holding really quite entrenched views. Uh, and we know how stubborn some people can be, can't they, once they've, once they've taken a viewpoint. Uh, I don't know what the solution is. If there's some magic solution to help people sort of unbend from this, uh, you know, rather this sort of stubborn viewpoint about the vaccine and, and think again about all the data we have now, all the things that we're seeing now, uh, and of course, all the terrible stories that you see and hear of, of people who really thought they were young, fit and healthy and then catch COVID and find out that actually the virus gets ahead of their immunity uh, and puts them in a serious position. I quite often hear people say things like, oh, I've got an excellent immune system and, you know, I'm really healthy and I hardly ever catch colds. I can assure you 
nothing that you've ever experienced in your life before is of any value in predicting whether or not you'll get seriously with COVID. There is no test that I know of or have ever heard of that can tell us whether someone's immune system will cope with this virus or not. So that kind of talk doesn't really mean anything in terms of your risk of getting a serious illness. Only the vaccine really has a massive impact. If I can ask you just finally, um, we know there's to be no restrictions announced before Christmas. Maybe there will be new restrictions next week. But what is your advice to people listening to this who may be thinking, well, I want to go down the pub on New Year's Eve or I am going to go to a party or I am going to go and watch fireworks. Do you ha- Are you cautious? Do you think people should stay at home unless they really have to go out on New Year's Eve? Well, I think the problem is, is that people people are setting their minds, aren't they, that they want to go out and they want to have fun and they want to enjoy themselves. Uh, I think I would echo uh, what Professor Chris Whitty said about, you know, think carefully about, you know, how desperately, badly, really, do you want to do this? Uh, and if it is something you feel compelled to do, please take a lap flow test just before you go. Um, you know, that's the best way to um, make sure that everybody is safe as they can be. And of course, on top of that, if you do see a faint line, however faint, please take the hint and cancel your plans, I'm afraid. Um, It it is distressing, upsetting. I I know people myself who've had to cancel a bunch of plans because they've got a a positive test inside their family. Uh, It is upsetting, but it's not the end of the world. And you are doing a massive uh, favor to our very hard-pressed hospital staff Uh, at this uh, really quite difficult time of the year most years but even more so now that's david matthews he's professor of virology at the university of of bristol visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast videos opinion pieces and more if you want to get in touch tweet us at mailplus or me at tory boy pierce christmas excess well we know it's guaranteed as we prepare to forget being sensible and get ready to eat drink and that old cliche be merry but the reality is as we pile up our plates we're piling on the pounds too amanda daly is professor of behavioral medicine at loughborough university and has calculated the calories that go into a christmas dinner and what it takes to burn it out afterwards and she joins me now amanda we all eat far too much on christmas day don't we and we always eat far too much particularly with christmas lunch yeah, unfortunately, that's that's the case, Andrew. Um, Christmas is a time where we kind of all decide to let our hairs down and uh, we eat a lot of food, but also we drink a lot of, um, of alcohol too, which all adds to the total amount of food and calories that we're, that we're consuming. Now, the calories consumed at Christmas dinner, you've, you estimate, could take a 50-mile hike or six-hour jog to burn off because Christmas dinner could represent 3,475 calories, that's way above the man's daily allowance of two and a half thousand and women's 2,000 calories. Yeah, that's right. So it's a long way, isn't it? 50 miles for uh, all, all that food. But I guess what we're trying to do in terms of calculating this is really highlight to the public the amount of calories that are often in festive foods. And a lot of the time, the public don't really understand the real energy costs of all the foods that they're eating. So we wanted to try and highlight that and really try and encourage the public to think a little bit more about what they're eating so definitely have a good time enjoy yourself but just think about the the amount of physical activity it's going to take afterwards to uh to, to kind of burn off all those calories i'm just looking at these two slices of turkey or pig in blankets 360 calories that's so to get rid of that 72 minute walk yeah it's a lot a long way isn't it so maybe only have one pig in blanket or maybe only have two but do you really need three 
um, because the energy costs of that uh, are actually quite far. Yeah, and of course the demon booze, I, I described it once as, as launching a bomb on your waistline. Two glasses of Prosecco, okay. 230 calories, a 46-minute walk. And we all know that nobody's going to go walking after Christmas or they might go for a walk with the dog before Christmas, but don't most people just collapse in front of the TV after lunch, which means they're going to part, they've got no chance of working it off. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's part of the problem. So again, that's one of the reasons why we kind of did these calculations to really encourage people to go out and walk because walking is obviously a good way of expending calories, but also it's really important for your mental health, for your joints, your bones and encouraging, you know, your heart and your lungs to work really well. So there's lots of real kind of um, broad brush benefits to, to doing more physical activity. And we know that most of the public are overweight. So 60% of the public in the United Kingdom are overweight. And often at Christmas time, you know, we eat more food. The key thing, though, is that a lot of people don't lose that weight after Christmas. So year after year, you can see how those calories and those, um, those pounds might, might kind of mount up. So. Yeah, and look at this, a total of 12 hours of walking at four miles an hour needed to burn off the average Christmas dinner for an adult weighing 13 stone, three pounds. 12 hours, that is such a long time. And the thing is, so much of what we like is fattening, isn't it, Amanda? The gravy's fattening, the roast potatoes are fattening, not least because often we, sh- we slather them in goose fat or, or something yeah. else like that. Yeah, um, so, I mean, the average sort of Christmas dinner isn't, isn't too bad overall. It's all the extras that go with it. So if you look at the cheese, the pork, the wine, all those extra things, the nibbles at the start. So together, they actually accumulate to make, to make quite a lot of calories, as, as you can see. So it's just about demonstrating a little bit of restraint. But, you know, I don't want to be uh, Mrs. Boring and encourage people to, to eat very little on Christmas Day. But just think about how hard it's going to be to get rid of it afterwards. Now, I'm going to ask you a cheeky question. What uh-huh. indulgence are you going to not give up on Christmas Day? I'm not going to give up uh, Christmas pudding and ice cream because I love that. And uh, I'm, I'm a keen runner, so I'll be going out afterwards to uh, unbox. Will you? To, yeah, I will. I will. I'll definitely practice what I preach. So uh, I'm not I'll go out on preacher. Christmas Day after your lunch, but you'll go out on Boxing Day. I'll go out in the morning on Christmas Day beforehand. Uh, right, to very put, good. Uh, some energy in the bank, yeah. And not much booze. Uh, I have a little, a little drink. I'm not, I'm not a big drinker, but I'll be definitely having some prosecco. As I say, it's important we enjoy ourselves and spend some time with our families, and uh, you know, and let our head in a little bit. But it's just a little bit of restraint because once weight goes on, it's really hard to get rid of it. Absolutely right. Do you make your own Christmas pudding or do you buy it? Uh, my mum makes it. Um, oh, good on so, her. Yeah, and uh, a nice bit of cream cream on top. And uh, I, I am partial to the odd chocolate afterwards as well. So It's all round to your place then, Amanda. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to come, Andrew, and uh, enjoy Christmas dinner? <laughs> <laughs> You'll be busy That's walking very nice up to your me. calories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not sure about the run the next day, though. Uh, that's Amanda Daly. She's Professor of Behavioural Medicine at Loughborough University who's calculated all the calories that go into that Christmas dinner. So do enjoy it, but remember... Perhaps try and work some of it off. So it's coming to the end of the year and it's been a bumpy, tumultuous year across the political spectrum and in the business world too. Here to tell us the highs and lows, Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, the Daily Mail's business editor. Let's do the negatives first, Ruth. Well, I think the negatives are... um fairly plain to see really the big negative at the moment is that the economy having done 
really actually rather well at recovering. It, it looks as if it's going into almost a shutdown by default towards the end of the year, which has given the FTSE 100 the jitters. So the FTSE is, is up quite strongly um, on where it was at the start of the year, but we've seen particularly stocks like airlines and leisure um, take a bit of, a, a, of an attack of the nerves, as you, as you would expect. Um, I think one of the things that I've found to be one of the biggest negatives is the re-emergence of inflation. Now, you and I have discussed this a little bit before. Even we are too young to remember when inflation stalked the land. Um, I mean, we both are still quite young, obviously. Um, but a lot of people really have no memory of how bad it was in the 1970s or even in the 1980s. And we're seeing inflation making a comeback. Now, that's definitely been one of the negatives. We're waiting to see whether the, the Bank of England's action to nudge up interest rates a little bit will be enough um, to, you know, just to sort that out, to put a lid on it before it gets out of hand. And I think there are two big negatives coming down the tracks for 2022. Um, and they're both tax negatives, actually. So one is we're all going to see an increase in our national insurance contributions in April. And the second is that we're going to see the beginning of a series of corporation tax hikes, hikes that are going to also kick in in April. So that's looming over us. So no sooner will we have got out of, um, what well, we hope anyway, got out of the Omicron blow, but firms and individuals will be looking at tax rises in the spring. So, you know, that's, that's not the greatest thing to look forward to, really. Exactly. Uh, and we, as we go into 2022, Ruth, well, the economy will recover, but is it, going to be, is it going to recover fast enough to do anything at all about scratching the surface of the huge debt we're in? Well, so we, the good news on this is that we are forecast by the IMF to be the fastest growing de developed country economy this year and to do pretty well next year as well. So we, so we will um, perform decently, I think, or at least the, those are all the forecasts. Now, on the other side of that, our national debt is 2.3 trillion. That's a monstrous figure, it really is. And the best way to get out of debt is to have an economy that's open and flourishing and performing well. So it all really depends on that. Now, I should say, nobody really expects us to pay back that amount of money. Um, what, what the markets want to see is credible commitment to keeping the debt under control. Um, so they, and they do have faith in that as things stand, but they'll be watching like a hawk just to see that we're not losing our grip um, on that debt. And we have to remember, this is something that's going to be faced by future generations. So we shouldn't be too cavalier about what we're saddling our grandchildren and our children with here. Um, you know, debt does matter in the, in, in the end. It does. That's Ruth Sunderland, who is business editor at the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. Well, with energy bills rising, gas has just reached an all-time high. Inflation has just peaked at a 10-year high. Wallets are already stretched. So it's no surprise a poll has found two-thirds of us are planning to spend less on Christmas this year. And um, it's parents who are often the ones with the highest outgoings at Christmas. Money Mail reporter Helena Kelly spoke with some parents who found thrifty ways to keep both the kids 
and the bank account happy this Christmas. And she joins me now. So, Helena, we're not saying we've got to be Ebenezer Scrooge, but some people have definitely got to tighten their belts, not least because of these huge increases in energy prices that are coming along. What are some of the ways you've uncovered? Yeah, so it was really nice to speak to quite a few families who were sort of saying, you know, a lot of it's to do with rising energy prices, but a lot of them as well are just thinking more eco-friendly as well. And when you've got kids, you can sort of end up with mountains of plastic in your home. So they kind of wanted to avoid that. So I spoke to one mom who just found a second-hand doll's house for um, her two, you know, twin daughters and was just upcycling it herself. She was, like, doing all the renovations to it herself, and that was sort of going to be their main present. Um, some of the other case studies as well. I mean, I can't imagine doing this, but one of them has been sort of planning for Christmas all year round. So all year they'd been like foraging for gifts that, that were seasonal during the year and then sort of had a big hamper ready for the end of the year to give to their loved ones. That's nice. And are people cutting back a lot, would you say, Helena, on spending, the, some of the families you talk to? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of them had sort of been through a particularly hard time during the pandemic. Um, their sort of business had been forced to close. So it was, you know, it was really crucial that they sort of kept their costs down. I think a lot of people, when you speak to them, it's it's more the environmental reasons as well that they're also thinking about. I think the key thing is, is that the sort of the secondhand business is sort of much better than it used to be. There's a lot less sort of shame around it and people are so much more conscious and they're so much willing, more willing to sort of, you know, give over, you know, high quality items. And I think... I think also, Helena, um, if you walk up and down most high streets today, there's probably at least one, two or even three charity shops. Uh, and whenever I go past them where I live, there's always a lot of people in them because, again, the stigma has gone about buying clothes or goods from charity shops where you can get some good bargains and also think that you're doing some good for the charity. Yeah, certainly. You definitely see that. I mean, we had like a poll from Vinted that said more than half of shoppers wanted to buy sort of second-hand gifts, at least one second-hand gift um, this Christmas. And what I found really interesting from the, um, you know, the mums I spoke to who were sort of doing a thrifty Christmas, two of them actually used to work, it was quite a coincidence, but two of them actually used to work in sort of um, PR for luxury brands. So they'd worked for like oh, really? and like Ralph Lauren and Moe. And these are not the sort of people that you expect to be, shopping secondhand but they were and they'd really sort of invested in it now and I think that just shows that the sort of clientele that are going for pre-loved gifts has definitely changed massively I think it's quite trendy to be you know more sustainable now anyway and more frugal yeah um, and also so, if yeah. you're buying if you're buying for kids the kids want stuff to be sustainable don't they you can just imagine them belly aching when they open the present on Christmas day if there's four yards of plastic around whatever they've been given yeah exactly yeah yeah for sure and I think people are just sick of that is you know just having so much plastic taps when they've got children um so there's you can definitely see that people are just stripping back and sort of going back to basics a little bit and what about you helena have you been thrifty well, <laughs> do you know what I was just about to say? Because I was like, I know it's two days to Christmas, but this is actually sort of the time when people are most likely to to overspend, and I I shamefully still have some gifts still to buy. <laughs> <gasps> Hell, I know, I not know. much it's time. Be a bit of a panic. <laughs> Christmas Eve <laughs> yeah. shopping and all that, and and yeah. and did you did you sense also, Helena? Just finally, a lot of people were also searching for bargains online. Um, yeah, certainly. I think that goes in hand with sort of the boom in the second-hand market. Is um, people love like Facebook Marketplace now. There's some like real bargains on there. Um, Vinted as well, which is sort of like you know an eBay and those kind of sites and Depop where you can buy things online. So there's yeah, there's definitely a lot of like bargain hunting to be had online for sure. Now, when you're doing your last-minute shopping, Helena, please, please don't spend too long looking for my present, okay? 
<laughs> that's helena kelly do read her report it's fascinating about how mums it's always the mums isn't it let's be honest mums more than dads have been have found thrifty ways to keep both the kids and the bank account happy that's all we've got time for today and for 2021 of course so do keep an eye on the mail plus app for our best of 2021 episodes every weekday i'm andrew pierce this is the andrew pierce show i'll be back with you on january the 4th have a really really wonderful and healthy christmas and a wonderful happy new year and let's hope 2022 is better than 2021